bones, said Bran. It's bones. The floor of the passage was littered with the bones of birds and beasts. But there were other bones as well, big ones that must have come from giants and small ones that could have been from children. On either side of them, in niches carved from the stone, skulls looked down on them. Bran saw a bear skull and a wolf skull, half a dozen human skulls and near as many giants. All the rest were small, queerly formed, children of the forest. The roots had grown in and around and through them, every one. A few had ravens perched atop them, watching them pass with bright black eyes. The last part of their dark journey was the steepest. Hodor made the final descent on his arse, bumping and sliding downward in a clatter of broken bones, loose dirt and pebbles. The girl child was waiting for them, standing on one end of a natural bridge above a yawning chasm. Down below in the darkness, Bran heard the sound of rushing water, an underground river. Do we have to cross? Bran asked as the reeds came sliding down behind him. The prospect frightened him. If Hodor slipped on that narrow bridge, they would fall and fall. No, boy, the child said. Behind you. She lifted her torch higher, and the light seemed to shift and change. One moment the flames burned orange and yellow, filling the cavern with a ruddy glow. Then all the colours faded, leaving only black and white. Behind them, Mira gasped. Hodor turned. Before them, a pale lord in ebon finery sat dreaming in a tangled nest of roots, a woven weirwood throne that embraced his withered limbs as a mother does a child. His body was so skeletal and his clothes so rotted that at first Bran took him for another corpse, a dead man propped up so long that the roots had grown over him, under him, and through him. What skin the corpse lord showed was white, save for a bloody blotch that crept up his neck onto his cheek. His white hair was fine and thin as root hair, and long enough to brush against the earthen floor. Roots coiled around his legs like wooden serpents. One burrowed through his breeches into the desiccated flesh of his thigh to emerge again from his shoulder. A spray of dark red leaves sprouted from his skull, and grey mushrooms spotted his brow. A little skin remained, stretched across his face, tight and hard as white leather, but even that was fraying, and here and there the brown and yellow bone beneath was peeking through. Are you the three-eyed crow? Bran heard himself say. A three-eyed crow should have three eyes. He has only one, and that one red. After a desperate, harrowing journey through ice and snow, avoiding Boltons and Rogue Knight's Watch and Whites and starvation, Bran and his friends come upon the place they have long tried to reach, the Cave of the Three-Eyed Crow, only to find it almost as scary as the things they've been running from. These dark depths where our young Stark hero is expected to help save the world, or at least learn to save the world, is a place of ancient legend and wonder, yes, but also a place of death. At least it's warmer down there, but... So many 
bones. This isn't what Bran expected, nor perhaps most of us readers. An even bigger surprise is the so-called Pale Lord in Ebon Finery, the corpse lord with the wine-stained birthmark who is part tree with one red eye and mushrooms on his head. And he is our topic today. A much different man than he was, if you can still call him a man. Whatever you call him, imagine how it looks to a ten-year-old and his not-much-older companions. Imagine how it would look to anyone. But while this episode will have plenty of Brandon Stark, Brendan Rivers, the object of our horror, not the one gazing at it, is our topic. So instead of imagining what it was like for Bran, we're going to imagine what it was like for Bloodraven. Not just his first look at that cave and the bones and the children of the forest, but his journey from the wall to this equivalent point. His battles with ice and snow and whatever else. How did Lord Brynden Rivers go from Hand of the King, Master of Whispers, Sorcerer, Knight, Ranger, Lord Commander to that? We're not supposed to judge people too much on how they look, and Brynden Rivers was already mocked for his appearance as a living man, but wow, I think we can all give ourselves a pass here and say, damn, that is a terrifyingly ugly and frightening man-tree. But also as man and as man-tree, he's taken on the role of Protector of the Realm. That was one of his official titles during his long time among mankind, and an unofficial one during his long time afterwards. Strangely enough, the unofficial iteration is far more important. As G.R. Mormont, another character who will feature in this episode, has said, when dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? Welcome to History of Westeros Podcast. I'm Aziz, and this is the Three-Eyed Blood Raven. Our show is brought to you by our patrons, including Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, and our Dragon Rider patrons, Telenis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black, and Robert IV of House Ardeacor, burned King of Blazewater Bay, Rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. History of Westeros is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of independent podcasters grouping together to create strength in numbers. Rather than an Agora show this month, we're asking for anyone out there interested in advertising with Agora to reach out to us and be exposed to over a million downloads a month in a variety of great shows, including History of Westeros podcast, the History of England, History of the Papacy, Wittenberg to Westphalia, History of China, and a lot of other great shows. This episode serves as both a standalone or as an epilogue to our lengthy Blackfire Rebellion series. This experience is improved if you listen to the prior Bloodraven episodes, if not the entire Blackfire series. But this episode is also designed to stand alone. A fun but challenging aspect of Bloodraven's character is how easy it is to imagine him watching or impacting almost any scene from afar. For example, Mormont's Raven was talking during that scene we just quoted, the one with Gior setting John straight on priorities. And Mormont's Raven does some pretty suspicious things in general, right? Magically suspicious? Yeah, perhaps. Like that last one. We're going to have to ask a lot of questions we can't answer. But we can narrow things down, and we can have a lot of fun doing it. In an era where the dragons are gone and magic has ebbed, Brendan Rivers went the other way. He learned sorcery and became a green seer. What man could go from hand of the king to the wall, yet managed to become more powerful? Well, just this one guy, I suppose. We don't have any other examples. After the Dance of the Dragons, 45 years before Bloodraven was born, 
the few remaining real dragons began to die out. And likewise, by the end of the Blackfire Rebellions, there were very few red or black dragons left. Even Brendan Rivers' white dragon, Sigil, was set aside when he took the black, after being sent to the wall by a king who would later die trying to bring the dragons back. And that king's brother is where we start. We get to relive Bloodraven's journey to the far north indirectly through the memories of someone who made that long trip with him all those years ago. To the wall. Samwell too, a feast for crows. The old man heard him. Though Eamon's eyes had dimmed and gone dark, there was nothing wrong with his ears. I was not born blind, he reminded them. When last I passed this way, I saw every rock and tree in Whitecap, and watched the grey gulls flying in our wake. I was five and thirty and had been a maester of the chain for sixteen years. Egg wanted me to help him rule, but I knew my place was here. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon, and insisted that his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. Eamon was thirty-five, as he says, an experienced maester with sixteen years wearing a chain. Perhaps more relevantly for this episode, he was maester on Dragonstone to his own brother, Daron, the Drunkard, a.k.a. Daron the Dreamer. He dreamt of many things, some of which came true, and he also dreamt of dragons, most of all. In Aemon's own words, and as Summerhall seems to prove, Aemon's brother Aegon, a.k.a. Egg, also dreamt of dragons. Bloodraven's time on the Wall will end up totaling about 19 years, and while we cannot assume that Aemon and Brynden were friends or even that they got along, men with interest and knowledge of the occult are rare at the wall. Heck, people who can read are rare at the wall. So I tend to think that they had at least some things to discuss. Matters of dreams and prophecies and bloodlines, all that fun stuff. Maybe one of them joked to the other about how all the cool rare books at Castle Black make all this ice and snow and isolation worth it. (laughs) They say that fire destroys, but cold preserves. Perhaps the something like 8,000-year-old others themselves embody this concept better than anything or anyone else, but Eamon's extra lifespan seems to have been in part a product of the cold and dry climate up there, and Blood Ravens may have as well. Though ultimately, I think magic had a greater role in that, just as it does with Melisandre, whose age seems to be far beyond what she appears, and she just so happens to have joined the party in the North, Mel and Blood Raven and the others, a party for older beings with advanced age and or magical powers, or at least Targaryen blood in Aemon's case. <laughs> a young boy named Bran may exceed them all in power before long, but when Brendan Rivers arrived at the Wall, Bran was still 57 years away from being born. He'd have to wait a while before he could begin mentoring the savior of mankind. Is, is that what we should be thinking of Bran as? Something like that, I guess. At this point in his life, Brendan Rivers did not know all of this, perhaps none of it. He probably had no inkling that he would one day pass his knowledge onto a young Stark boy. He may not yet have known about the others either, though it's likely he knew a few things given his reading habits. And imagine him that first time, like it was for Tyrion, gazing into the deep, dark, frozen north from atop the wall. He would have had that moment too, but unlike Tyrion, That sense of dread he may have felt wasn't something he could afford to jape about later. Tyrion had the comfort of knowing he could turn his back on the wall and head south again, but the Night's Watch is for life, and Bloodraven had to face whatever was out there. At least he wasn't alone, though. And thanks to Aemon, we know parts of the story. 
Sometimes when we look at a character, we like to point out their first appearance. As it is with so many other details regarding Brendan Rivers, even his first appearance is complicated. If he sent the direwolves to the Starks, does that count? Probably not. He's in Bran's dreams very early on, though. Does that count? I can see arguments either way. On one hand, that's his voice. On the other hand, everything else about him is obscured. And to be fair, Martin hadn't even fleshed out who Bloodraven was by that point, though he had decided that he was a Targaryen bastard. So there are good points on both sides. We'll definitely say this one is up to the reader. Honor Guard. No recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the watch six kings and golden fetters. Egg emptied out the dungeons too, so I would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called. One was no less a man than Brynden Rivers. Later he was chosen Lord Commander. Bloodraven, said Darian. I know a song about him. A thousand eyes and one, it's called. But I thought he lived a hundred years ago. He did live a hundred years ago, Darian. He did indeed. Yet he also lives now. And just as he did as a master of whispers, he saw much and more as a brother of the Night's Watch. And more so after descending into the cave in which he now resides. I'm a little surprised Aemon is portrayed this way. It would seem a bigger deal that Bloodraven took the black. He was more famous than Aemon, I think. He had his own song even, right? (laughs) A Thousand Eyes and One. How many people who have ever taken the black have had a song written about them? Maybe not the only one, but he's probably one of the few. Maybe the only one. Aemon was, of course, a Targaryen, and that alone made him somewhat famous. But by choice, he never rose above Maester, whereas Brynden rose high before joining the Watch, and then rose high after joining the Watch, and then rose high after that even. (laughs) Of course, that will be a big part of this episode. How he went from Master of Whispers to Lord Commander of the Night's Watch to the last Greenseer to the Three-Eyed Crow who has been with us since the beginning of the story. Since Bran's third chapter in 1996 in terms of real-world chronology. In terms of in-world chronology, he was born in 175, went to the Wall at age 58, went to the cave around age 77, and has been there becoming part tree for almost 50 more years. He's still alive, and though alive is hard to define here, How much longer will he be able to speak, or will he somehow be killed? Bran Three, A Dance with Dragons Most of him has gone into the tree, explained the singer, Mira called Leaf. He has lived beyond his mortal span, and yet he lingers. For us, for you, for the realms of men. Only a little strength remains in his flesh. He has a thousand eyes and one, but there is so much to watch. One day, you will know. He has a purpose, and he knows how important it is. What could be more important than this? But he can't feel great about the age of the person who he's handing the baton off to. But he's preparing to do it anyway. What choice does he have? There's no one else. If Bran is the only hope... So be it. Prepare him for what's coming. If he's too young to grasp it all on his own, then teach him. Do the best we can. Make him understand how important he is. But this is Bran circa the year 300, and right now, we're dealing with the year 233. But in both of these timelines, at this point, 233 and 300, we're in the midst of winter. 
A literally chilling aspect of this part of the story is winter itself, which had been raging for three years when Brendan, Eamon, and the rest headed north from King's Landing, where it was undoubtedly much colder. Most likely, they headed to Eastwatch by the sea and took the long, though less long than any other route, to Castle Black to be sworn in. Apart from all that, Eamon may have been told, somewhat jokingly, that all the other prisoners who took the black with him were an honor guard that made his famous personage appear even more important as he sailed away from the capital forever. And sure, a lot of them would respect the office of Maester and his Targaryen heritage, the fact that he was brother to the king and all that, but none of them were his men. Most were likely no one's men in particular, the usual type sent to the wall, criminals and those abandoned by society, etc. And that's okay. Men are supposed to give up old loyalties when they take the black. But we all know that's not always the case. The Night's Watch has fallen victim to civil wars, cliques, factions, and all other manner of infighting. And a large portion of the men who went to the wall with Eamon and Brynden had such pre-existing loyalties. From Ravens to Crows The bit about no one intercepting his ship is a reference to Bittersteel, who was rescued on the way to the wall. Was this like some sort of shade they're throwing at Bloodraven? No one came to rescue him? <laughs> but amazing if he hadn't been rescued. Bittersteel, that is. Bittersteel and Bloodraven on the wall together at the same time, bound by the Night's Watch oath to be brothers. And they were brothers already, obviously. But I doubt they'd have been assigned to the same castle, however. That's one way a Lord Commander deals with people who can't stand each other. You just move them apart so they don't have to be in each other's presence. The Night's Watch isn't supposed to play a role in the affairs of the kingdom, but they hear things. And the Lord Commander, whoever he was, surely knew about those two. And, of course, Brackens and Blackwoods hating each other is nothing new. That's probably not the first time a Bracken and Blackwood would have had to be kept apart on the wall. And, of course, Bittersteel was not Bloodraven's only enemy in the world, probably not the only one on the wall either. Family ties and loyalty, as we said, have to be set aside. And so must old grudges. Yet, of the two, that one might be harder to set aside. Family is far away, and you'd be executed if you left to go to them. Well, unless Gran and Sam and Pip brought you back before you got very far, but that's another story. But when someone you hate shows up to live where you live with their stupid single red eye staring at you, well, that's a bit more in your face, isn't it? On the flip side of that coin from people who will do anything to kill you are people who will do anything to keep you alive, such as the raven's teeth, at least those of that group who followed Bloodraven in taking the black. Seriously, how deep does your loyalty have to run to follow a man to the wall? Some may have already been among the condemned, thus having little to lose by going north, but it's hard to imagine all or even most of them being in such a position. How could so many men all share the blame for Aeneas's execution? Some of them had to be innocent, right? This is Aegon V. Egg that we're talking about, not the kind of man to play fast and loose with justice. So most of these raven's teeth likely did take the black entirely by choice. Since they didn't have a crime to answer for, it had to be voluntary. That's remarkable loyalty. Again, not only taking the black, which is a harsh and permanent life by any standard, they're doing it during an awful winter. And like any recruit, they also give up family and claims and titles. Many of the raven's teeth maybe wouldn't be giving up that much as far as that goes, as it doesn't seem likely that their ranks had many highborn among them. Still, going to the wall voluntarily is a huge deal. Brendan Rivers was highborn, of course, but didn't have a house to give up, really, even though he was legitimized. Though he did get to bring Dark Sister with him, an unforgettable symbol of his heritage. 
Not that anyone could fail to recognize him, given his distinct look, and some might have known him more personally. As Hand of the King, Brendan Rivers dispensed justice, and he did it a lot given King Aerys I would rather be off reading old books. So there would definitely be a few, if not more than a few, men on the wall who were sent there by Bloodraven himself, a man known for his rather harsh sense of justice. He was a hardliner. Some of those men might hold a grudge because of that. So it's a good thing Brendan had these ultra-loyal men with him, though they'd be recruits just like him, subject to being sent to other castles or simply not being in his presence when they wanted to be. The rank-and-file Night's Watch is one thing, but even more hinges on the officers. Jon Snow, a bastard like Brendan Rivers, had the misfortune of landing with Alice or Thorne, a bitter man who hated, well, almost everyone, but especially Starks, as the reason Alice or Thorne is on the wall is that he stayed loyal to Ares. Powerful ice and fire themes are another thing that they have in common, Brendan and Jon, that is. But of course, Brendan wasn't really a bastard like Jon Snow in most other ways as it pertains to being a fresh recruit at the wall. John was not even considered an adult yet. That's what I mean. Bloodraven was, well, Bloodraven. <laughs> Long experienced career before he got there. Hand of the King, Master Whispers, Sorcerer, one of the most accomplished people to take the black ever. But also one of the most infamous. Kinslayer, bastard, harsh, ruthless, mocking, dangerous. Alistair Thorne is no coward, but he wouldn't have spoken to Brendan the way he spoke to John is a safe bet. In general, we wonder how they were treated by the average brother. Aside from the ones who had personal reasons to like or dislike him, I mean, it's a safe bet many of them were just flat out intimidated by him. A lot of others would just be really curious. And it's noteworthy that Brendan and the Raven's Teeth wouldn't start off with basic training like John and Sam and the others had, though. New recruits with sufficient combat experience surely skip that step, minus the parts that are unique to the watch itself. You still have some sort of orientation to go through. Someone has to teach them their vows and where Molestown is, you know, all that. But John and Sam still come to mind when we think of the Night's Watch vows. Said at a heart tree, right? I would think several of the Raven's Teeth would be like Sam here. No, not wanting to be wizards. Their boss was already that. <laughs> I would guess many would say their vows in front of a heart tree, praying to the old gods, even if they maybe had initially been blessed in the light of the seven as kids. Now, there's no way for us to know this for sure, unless maybe we're told later when or how Brendan's awakening came, for example, when his connection to the old gods began is a mystery that we haven't been able to pin down. We've just kind of talked to it a lot, discussed all the possibilities. We don't know whether it began gradually, whether it was some sort of sudden thing. It's all a mystery. But in the South, how many living heart trees did he encounter? Surely a few. The answer is likely to be above zero, uh, even though the one at Raventree Hall is not one of them since that one's turned to stone. Still, this would be a new experience, I think, even for someone of his age. Kneeling in what was very likely deep snow. Remember, it was a deep of winter at this time. Gazing into that face, that heart tree, feeling colder, probably much colder than he ever had. And perhaps there was... A rustling sound. There could have been someone. Someone who was themselves at one time the last green seer. Trying to speak to Brendan in his dreams. Through heart trees, through animals, or other means rooted in nature. Was he confused by this experience? Terrified by it? Expecting it? Another question we can't answer. After John and Sam finished their vows, 
Ghost emerged from the trees with a forearm in his jaws, a terrifying sign that winter was more than just cold and ice and snow. It's intriguing to consider. Brendan was watching Bran, and Bran was young. The green seers of Brendan's time would have had a lot longer time to notice him. Bran was seven at the start of the Game of Thrones, and Brendan took his Night's Watch vows circa age 58. So there wouldn't be some dude saying, you knelt as boys, rise as men, like it was for John and Sam. But they would be brothers in black, new men, stripped of their old lives. His white dragon replaced with snow and ice. Blackwood replaced with black garb. And the same goes for his men, in their own way. You could maybe say their transformation was more minor. They knelt as ravens and rose as crows. Hi there. I love your uh, histories. I'm really excited for the illustrated Fire and Blood coming out. Um, so I had a history-based question. I was curious if Blood Raven took Dark Sister with him to the wall. If- Did Blood Raven take Dark Sister with him to the wall, his sword? Did Blood Raven take Blood Sister with him? Dark Sister. Dark Sister. Yes, he did. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Bastard Brother, Snow and Rivers. Because John is a major point of view and his early arc is centered around joining the Night's Watch, we get a up-close look at how things work up there. It helps us figure out in a rough sense what it might have been like for other people like Brendan and the Raven's Teeth. But the two, John and Brendan, have quite a lot more in common beyond just being bastards who became black brothers. Giving up lands and titles and honors when you take the black cuts both ways. Your crimes are forgotten and your social stigmas are supposed to be forgotten as well. But as we've seen, that's more of a how it's supposed to work rather than a how it actually works kind of situation. Alistair Thorne is the perfect example. He calls John Bastard whenever he's not calling him Lord Snow. Both of these names are references to who he was. There may not be a rule against Thorne using those names, but it's certainly against the spirit of the Watch and forgetting your past life. And this is an an officer who's (laughs) teaching new recruits. Yeah, not a big fan of Alistair. So Brendan was probably called Bastard as well. Even if there weren't guys like Alistair around, there's always a few (laughs) unhappy people on the wall, right? And that's going to be the case even though Brendan was legitimized. He was probably called a lot worse, really. With John, it was a real problem because he didn't listen to Tyrion, meaning Tyrion warned him not to let people see that they can hurt him with words, and Alistair learned right away that John was kind of sensitive to that. Later, John does learn that lesson, but early in A Game of Thrones, he hasn't learned it yet. Taunts that would have goaded him into action in the first book no longer work on him in the fifth. I suspect that's more along the lines of Brendan, though Brendan would have learned before getting to the Wall. He was used to it by then, almost certainly. But it's possible there were a few things that could still get under his skin. Agor didn't go to the wall, as we said, but other members of the Golden Company did, and other men who fought for the Black Dragon were there. Men who had killed some of Brendan's friends. Hmm. He might not like, say, hearing uh, Shiera's name tossed around, for example, but a lot of people would be afraid of him and wouldn't say anything to his face. It would make sense if he spent a lot of time beyond the wall. I mean, a lot of rangers do that, and perhaps his connections to the old gods grew during that time. It's important to remember that even though we have no idea when that connection even started, whether it was a boy or a man or an old man, the wall may have changed that picture. It may have accelerated things. It's a hinge of the world, after all. It, it certainly would have affected his 
sorcery, if he was still practicing sorcery up there. I would guess, though, in terms of what his job was right away at the watch, it would have been as a ranger. Given that he later vanished on a ranging when he was 77 years old and Lord Commander, it stands to reason that he would have gone on some rangings when he was a lower-ranked brother. And he seems to have some of the skills already. Plenty of campaign experience, though surely not as good as an archer as he would have been with both eyes. He was still good at it as far as we can tell, and he was still wielding Dark Sister. On top of that, how useful is a ranger who can see through the eyes of ravens or other animals? A thousand eyes in one is really useful in the wild, just as it is at court. It might help explain his rapid rise through the ranks in the Night's Watch, although there's a lot of reasons for that. As we see in John's chapters, the wildlings have an awareness of many of the more dangerous rangers like Corrin Halfhand. With Brendan's distinct look and wide array of skills, I think he would have been one of those infamous rangers as well. The wildlings probably knew who he was. They would probably know what that red eye of his means too, meaning they would know he's marked by the old gods, which might just terrify them even more. The wildlings are familiar with skin changers for sure, but they probably don't see that many of them in the Night's Watch. John is another exception in that regard, most likely. Maybe they were more common back in the day, but probably not in Brendan's day. That's not that long ago. He might be the first Targaryen the wildlings have ever seen, and a rare wielder of Valyrian steel, too. Probably not the only time they've seen Valyrian steel, but that's obviously not going to be very common up there either. I'd guess many raiders fell to Dark Sister and his arrows. The brothers who he went ranging with may have eaten better than most, too. <laughs> I wonder if this was even a challenge for him. What wildling chieftain could ever match Bittersteel as an enemy? The Thens are fearsome and dangerous, but they're not really that dangerous compared to the Golden Company, are they? Still, this is the North, and winter itself is a killer. That's not something the Golden Company ever had to really face, as far as we know. That might be the toughest part of being a ranger for him. I could see him rising to first ranger, though. But... It was only six years before he took the highest job of all, Lord Commander, and who knows that the post of First Ranger was even open during that short time. And like John, being on the command track, meaning being groomed for command like John was, it can mean less time in the field, like it did for John. And during his first three years on the wall, again, as we've said, it was still winter. Less rangings are going to happen during winter just by necessity. There's going to be less raiding also for the wildlings, the watch. Everyone is staying indoors more during winter. Every person, that is. So maybe that meant he got a little extra time at Castle Black. That's cool. Extra time discussing prophecy with Maester Eamon. Or much tougher ranging assignments. Maybe this is backwards. Maybe the Lord Commander was one of those guys who hated him. Maybe he was a former member of the Golden Company or something like that. Maybe he was a Bracken. <laughs> Maybe Brendan was sent away to run one of the other castles for a while. A lot of possibilities here. But it wasn't the Night Fort. Uh, as a lot of you may have immediately thought, maybe Brendan ran the Night Fort. So did I. But then I realized, no, the, the Night Fort was abandoned long before Brendan even got to the wall. So that didn't happen. So let's recap John's Night's Watch arc before moving on to the next section. He's a Stark and a Targaryen bastard who joins the Watch, quickly proves himself, gets some Valyrian steel, is groomed for command, becomes a ranger for a while, and while beyond the wall, he has a great awakening as a skin changer. Compare that to Brynden, a Blackwood and Targaryen bastard who joins the Night's Watch, similar, though he brought his own Valyrian steel instead of earning it while there, 
still similar. He was probably groomed for command, though maybe expected to lead might describe him better. Yeah, that might have been true for John, too, as a Stark. Brendan also probably became Ranger for a while and maybe had a great awakening beyond the wall. Maybe his awakening grew larger. It was more awakening. He was more woke than he was. We need new words for some of this. But both John and Brendan survived their time as Rangers and continued to rise through the ranks. Brendan may have been first Ranger. That's pure conjecture. But he was definitely elected to the highest post on the watch, just like John. Like the Young Griff plot, or the Blackfires in general, George had the plan in place, but not all the details. He didn't have the full character of Bloodraven visualized when he first came up with Bran's coma dreams. But he had decided to make him a Targaryen bastard all the way back from the start. It's interesting that he chose House Blackwood and not a house from the North, maybe to emphasize the separation from Northern houses like Stark, so that he wouldn't be related to Bran? I suppose if you go back far enough in history, you can probably find a common ancestor between Bran and Bloodraven, via some long-ago Blackwood-Stark marriage. But that's splitting hairs. And heirs. Also, with regards to early plans for the series, it may be that George expected John to be on the wall for about six to seven years before becoming Lord Commander, which is very similar to how long it took for Brendan Rivers. But the five-year gap was scrapped, and John's rise turned out to be much faster. Lord Commander. Bloodraven's life at court was full of intrigue, politics, feuds between powerful families, being surrounded by excess. In other words, things that are anathema to life on the wall. And in his case, he was literally sent to the wall for violating guest right. Not a thing to make you popular in the North. And he was a kinslayer. Hmm, not a great start. As a regular brother of the Watch, these things matter less. But he was famous. And as Lord Commander, as a symbol of the Watch himself, some of his attributes may not have been agreeable, especially to the other Northern Lords. Yet in so many other ways, Bloodraven's like the perfect fit for the Watch in the North. Sure, he's part Targaryen again, that part's not a great fit, but he's also Blackwood, a house that keeps the old gods, and that is a perfect fit. Just the same, dragons are of old Valyria, but ravens are of the old gods. He wields Valyrian steel, but so does Lord Stark and Lord Mormont. And Brendan's bow is made of weirwood. In fact, I would argue he embodies the Night's Watch vows, the Night's Watch attitude as much as anyone. Service without expectation of reward. Service for service's sake. A willingness to sacrifice personal honor for the realm is a virtue, according to none other than Corrin Halfhand. And Brendan did that long before he got to the wall. He did that several times, really. We're talking about saving humankind because it's the right thing to do. And if he won't, who will? Who else has his unique talents? This is a man who does his duty. As far as we know, he never asked for rewards or wealth or land. Now, I know some of you are thinking, are we sure those are all his ambitions? Are we sure he's that selfless? No, we're not. And we're going to get to some of the alternative ideas later. But as far as how it looks, yes, that's what I think. Thus, I would expect the Night's Watch, even perhaps some of the men who didn't like him or even some of the ones who hated him, maybe they learned to respect him over time. He might have won them over. With the ugly veneer of politics out of the way and with rumor and sensationalism replaced with firsthand contact, like actually meeting the guy behind all these rumors, I think Brendan Rivers would look different in the eyes of many who had previously formed a negative opinion. And given his various high positions of authority under various kings, he clearly had lots of experience with being at the top and dealing with all those prideful personalities and all that. So not only did he have a lot of great leadership qualities, he knew what he was doing. He had experience. 
The Night's Watch is a place where you get what you earn and little else, meaning it's a place where merit counts for a lot. Not everything, but almost everything. And that's the kind of environment I think he could excel in. I think it's for a lot of reasons that we've laid out already, and the proof is there. It seems it's exactly what he did. In the year 239, the Lord Commander, whoever he was, the 990-somethings, died. After only six years on the wall, Brendan took his place. It's not hard to see how a man with his previous leadership credentials was elected. It does bring to mind the one election we've seen firsthand. John's. Filling out these John Bloodraven parallels is this incident of the election. And John was elected in even less than six years. Though, I suspect, that was George's original plan. Meaning, before the five-year gap was scrapped, the plan was probably for John to become Lord Commander after, although there are some versions of it where he did get it before. But plenty of others did. So either way, that we'll call that parallel an almost, not an actually. But plenty of other parallels did land. So let's go there. Let's take a look at the first one of those, which we're calling... The Bear and the Raven Unfair John 12, A Storm of Swords The East Watchman was pounding his fist on the table again, but now he was shouting for the kettle. Some of his friends took up the cry, Kettle! They roared as one, Kettle! 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 The kettle was in the corner by the hearth, a big black pot-bellied thing with two huge handles and a heavy lid. Maester Eamon said a word to Sam and Clydus, and they went and grabbed the handles and dragged the kettle over to the table. A few of the brothers were already queuing up by the token barrels as Clydus took the lid off and almost dropped it on his foot. With a raucous scream and a clap of wings, a huge raven burst out of the kettle. It flapped upward, seeking the rafters perhaps or a window to make its escape, but there were no rafters in the vault nor windows either. The raven was trapped. Cawing loudly, it circled the hall once, twice, three times, and John heard Samuel Tarley shout, I know that bird! That's Lord Mormont's raven! The raven landed on the table nearest John. Snow! It cawed. It was an old bird, dirty and bedraggled. Snow! It said again. Snow! 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 It walked to the end of the table spread its wings again, and flew to John's shoulder. Lord Janus Slint sat down so heavily he made a thump, but Sir Alistair filled the vault with mocking laughter. Sir Piggy thinks we're all fools, brothers, he said. He's taught the bird this little trick. They all say snow, go up to the rookery and hear for yourselves. Mormont's bird had more words than that. The raven cocked its head and looked at John. Corn? It said hopefully, when it got neither corn nor answer, it quaked and muttered, Cattle, cattle, cattle. The rest was arrowheads, a torrent of arrowheads, a flood of arrowheads, arrowheads enough to drown the last few stones and shells and all the copper pennies too. Alistair Thorne, as unappealing and hateful as he is, got it right. He sniffed out the scam, but got the details wrong. Sam's scam was playing Sir Dennis Malster and Cotter Pike, kind of against each other and against themselves. We see from his point of view and conversations with John afterwards, though, that he had nothing to do with that raven. And even if he only placed it in the kettle, which I doubt, he surely didn't train it to say those exact specific words in that exact moment. Right? 
the Raven had gone beyond the wall with Mormont and stayed with him from the fir- Fist of the First Men to Craster's Keep. This is its next appearance in the kettle. That's the next place it pops up. There are three major theories here. One is that there's nothing to see here. The Raven did its thing and it worked out for John. And that's that. That's the boring theory. I'm not really a fan of that one. Next is the idea it's Mormont in some sort of second life situation. It would make a lot of sense that he would want to elect John, right? That's who he had been grooming for command after all. And of course, he'd want just about anyone rather than Janos Slint. Problem being that there's not a whole lot of evidence Mormont could do this. Second life is for skin changers, not for just anyone. And he seemed pretty close to that bird. Was he that close to his bird? Evidence is kind of light. It's possible, but it's kind of light. The third option is that Blood Raven did it. It's a raven, after all. His namesake, along with wolves, seemingly the easiest to slip into as a skin changer, from what we've been told. And therein lies the inherent problem with theorizing what a green seer has been up to. <laughs> it's extremely easy to see him being the one commanding the raven here. But since we have no direct proof and other workable theories, it sits in the maybe column like so many other interesting but unprovable blood raven theories. As we'll discuss later and really throughout this episode, the whole maybe it was blood raven concept can be applied to so many things. Most of that's going to come later, though, when he's part tree. But he definitely had powers prior to that as well. I've painted him as fairly virtuous here, as I said earlier, but don't get me wrong. He's a man who did morally gray, if not worse, things in the name of the greater good, but his version of it. We showed pretty clearly that he was an ends justify the means kind of man. Just because I think he's basically a good person doesn't mean I think he plays fair. Those are two different concepts. But with the fate of humanity in his hands, if he's willing to justify the ends via the means, then he might justify just about anything with these with this hanging over him. Tricking a boy into eating the flesh of his friend, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Inflaming Euron's ambitions from an early point in life. Yeah, that maybe as well. Precisely that and more. The wildlings, as we mentioned earlier, are again a really interesting consideration. Brendan's relationship with them as a ranger versus his relationship with them as Lord Commander would change by necessity, just as it did with John. But I'm not so sure it would be the same. John wanted them as allies and saw the alternative, which was them becoming soldiers in the army of the dead, which maybe wasn't even a consideration for Blood Raven. Why would he see them as turning into the army of the dead? He might, but I doubt that was a problem that far back. I do think Blood Raven would see them kind of like he saw a lot of things, which is through his hardliner filter, which is foes to be destroyed. Uh, I don't really know what his awareness was of the others at this point. Nobody does. Maybe he did have some awareness of them. But it's tempting to think he had very little or only a shadowy knowledge of them, and he wasn't thinking too much about how the wildlings played into that. But if he did, if he did have all this awareness already, this foresight, and maybe it wasn't magical, maybe he just thought it through, maybe it was part magical, a little from column A, a little from column B. In any case, sure, he could be a hardliner when it came to lots of things, wildlings included maybe, but he was that way with so many other things while Hand of the King. But if he had awareness of the real threat, the true enemy... He might see things like John and Stannis do now. He might have thought it through and realized that in the War of the Living versus the War of the Dead, the wildlings are on the side of the living. And if they're not on the side of the living, they become on the side of the dead. 
And of course, the wildlings might have information too. They have more firsthand contact with the armies of the dead than anybody else. They might have information that's useful. So me speaking says, yes, they are useful. Just like I agree with John. (laughs) But even though the watch is supposed to be free of politics and what happens at the wall rarely impacts the realm, the reverse is much different. Politics impacts the wall. What happens in the South does matter even way up there. The wildlings are one of those cases, as John reminded Stannis. Useful they may be, but campaigning with the wildlings is a great way to get the North to turn on you. This is precisely the same kind of consideration Lord Commander Brendan Rivers would have had to make as well, because Lord Commander rely on help from the South. They have to play some politics, even though they're not really supposed to. It's kind of a fine line, a gray area. They have limited ability to sustain themselves up there. They don't have enough food all the time. They don't have great farmland. And even when they can sustain themselves, it's usually a temporary situation. They rely on the South for food. And even when they can sustain themselves, they need manpower from the South. And I mean the whole South, meaning the North and the South, because again, at the wall, it's all relative. So I'm not sure Bloodraven was great at asking for things or you know, talking to these lords and getting favors from them. But that's the position he found himself in again as Lord Commander. Other than perhaps men like, say, Yorin, who travel around as recruiters, the Night's Watch is pretty isolated from the realm. So it's kind of ironic that by rising to the highest position at this isolated job way into the north, that's what put him back into contact with the realm because the top guy at the Night's Watch has to deal with the realms of men. So even when the Night's Watch isn't involved or being involved in Southern politics against their will, they hear news. And sometimes, as Eamon tells John early in the series, the news can be painful, especially when you've taken a vow to stay out of things that your loved ones could really use your help with. However, there's nothing obvious in the timeline that would distress Brendan. Egg was a good king. And Summerhall came long after Brendan vanished beyond the wall, so not during his tenure as Lord Commander. He might wonder about Egg's kids all marrying for love, and as former Hand might have his own thoughts on how the Crown should have handled those scandals and the fallout from those scandals, as in all those houses who lost their promised Targaryen princes and princesses. But it's hard to see him feeling like Aemon did. Those broken pacts weren't tragedies by themselves. One possible exception is 251, when Prince Daron was killed by the rat, the hawk, and the pig. Prince Daron was born in 228, so Blood would have known him as a young boy. Uh, he left for the wall at 233, so Daron would have been about five at that point. On the other hand, sometimes the news is good, or sweet, or bittersweet, or bitter steel. Who knows how long the news took to reach the wall, but in 241, Agor Rivers was finally killed in battle at the ripe old age of 69. He'd have heard about that eventually, and one can only imagine how Brendan felt. Those two had fought all their lives through intrigue, on the battlefield, over a woman. Did Brendan feel like the winner? He outlived him, beat him more often than not, got the girl, but Agor was at rest, and Brendan, at age 67, had to keep fighting living in the bitter cold with quite a lot of responsibility and not a lot of fun. Speaking of fighting over that girl, did he ever get letters from Shiera? Was she even still alive? He had two full-blooded sisters as well, Gwyneth and Mia, and we never hear of them other than the fact that they existed, so it's possible they could have been sending him letters too. 
not knowing the shape of their relationships, we don't know if news or of letters from them would have been welcome or not. One of the duties of Lord Commander is treating with other lords, like we said, and the occasional king like Stannis or queen like Alysanne or royal kin like Tyrion show up. And it's good to have someone who can speak to them on their terms without being intimidated. It's traditional for lords of the North to support the Night's Watch, right? We don't know the relationship the North had with the Crown during the Blackfire Rebellions. So for that and other reasons, we don't know what kind of relationship they had with Lord Brynden either. And they don't have to deal directly with each other necessarily. Mormont seems to have preferred dealing with the Starks through Benjen, for example. And that makes sense for several reasons. Not only because of the obvious that Benjen is family and that they're more likely to be generous with him, but because of that awkward situation, which is Ned Stark sentencing G.R. Mormont's son to death. <laughs> so yeah, maybe uh, let's avoid that awkwardness. Now, Bloodraven sentenced a lot more people to death than Ned Stark. That seems like a safe guess. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm gonna, I would bet on that pretty heavily. So he may have operated similarly, as in through some of his officers to avoid awkward encounters. But whether he delegated or handled these relationships personally, let's take a look at at least who some of these lords and ladies were. In terms of dealing with the crown, well, like I said, that's still Egg. And if Bloodraven hated Egg for sending him to the wall, well, he had Aemon to deal with him. They could have Aemon and Egg do the corresponding and Bloodraven could, you know, sort of be on the periphery. At least it had that going for it, meaning Wall, King's Landing correspondence at least had one positive connection point. The rest of the South is less important. Not unimportant, but less important. The farther South you go, the less it matters. But Lords do send men to the wall or with recruiters and food and other arms and useful goods from time to time. A lot of those times those are through direct dealings, a lot of times not. But of course, because I said the farther south you go, the less important this is, it means by extension that the northern lords are the most important. Obviously, that starts and ends with House Stark. And the Lord Stark of the time was either Rickard or Edwile. And if you recall, that's either Ned's father or grandfather. And that alone has a lot of potential right there, doesn't it? Think about this. Conspiracy theories that say Rickard's southern ambitions were inspired or influenced by Bloodraven himself. Or consider whatever amazing conversations he could have had with the Starks during those times. Or imagine him at the Winterfell Heart Tree, perhaps cleaning Dark Sister in front of that pool, that crystal clear dark pool. Crystal clear and dark? Is that how that works? <laughs> Uh, like a mirror, like uh, we saw Ned doing with ice. Uh, maybe he would see himself <laughs> for the first time in forever. I don't think there's a lot of mirrors up at the wall. However, he sees himself through the eyes of his ravens, maybe. Hmm, yeah. You don't need a mirror when you can just look through other people's eyes. Nice trick. Now, Winterfell, he's unlikely to have needed Dark Sister for anything like fighting. It just, you know, it looks cool, though. But even at his advanced age, and despite his position as Lord Commander, Evidence suggests he remained active in the field. Let's move on to that. The raven that brings news of Lord Eddard's death to Winterfell had blood on its wings. Later, Bran twice thinks of it as the bloody raven that brought word of his father's death. George probably didn't do this on purpose, making it a bit of a happy accident, because he hadn't come up with the name Blood Raven by then. But it's still really cool. Thanks to our Blood Rider patrons, Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt, Koalkoi, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and lord of Castle Roundrock, 
Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the Wildfire Whip Gehenna. And since we're doing a northern episode today, how about some thanks to our northern champions patrons? Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Sir Stephen the Hammer of the North, Winter's King, Lord of the First Men, Lady Ar Ardross, Mother of Wolves, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Claymore Manticore, Sir Brian the Returned, Knight of the Last House, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Red Song, Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words are Wind, Deeds are Stone, Lady Cat Jones of the Big Pond, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Ginger's Honor, Jake Snow, a.k.a. Jacob Ice Eyes, the Bastard of the Last River, Lord Darren of House Rambler, The Last Hunt is Ceaseless, Lady Bobby of House Mitchell, and Bullweir the Purple of Heavenly Mythhead House Taurus. We've got a really cool shop to recommend to you today. It's run by our friend and listener, Lord Chuck Laz, and it's called Fanamaniacs.com. That's Fanamaniacs.com. And yeah, Chuck's uh, been a friend of ours for a while and is also a supporter of the show, and he's got a really cool store. Yeah, I've got one of the jackets that he has. Um, he has two jackets in particular. They're like a nice kind of windbreaker-style jacket, and I've got, a, I've got a Blackfire Rebellion one, which I'd be like, oh, cool, Blackfire Rebellion. No, this is even cooler. It's Star Wars Rebellion mashed up with the Blackfire logo. Yeah, so I love it. There's a lot of really cool mashup ideas that Chuck had, and you can see them on display at his store. One that I'm particularly a fan of, a lot of Atlanta people, a lot of Atlanta area people are fans of Dragon Con like myself, and he made a whole collection of Marriott carpet items. In fact, I used a Marriott carpet lanyard for my mm -hmm. Dragon Con badge last year. Yeah, and we had the badge ribbon on our badges as well. And I definitely got a few people like, oh, look. <laughs> I get such a kick out of that. It's so ridiculous, but mm -hmm. so fun. But he's got other mashups too, like Game of Thrones shirts mashed up with Harry Potter or Westworld and things like that. Yeah, I've got his Westworld shirt that says House Delos. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like anything to me, but perfect <laughs> house words for that. So check it out. That's fanamaniacs.com. Fanamaniacs.com. Still ranging after all these years. Bloodraven would rise to become Lord Commander of the Night's Watch in 239 AC, serving until his disappearance during a ranging beyond the wall in 252 AC. For such a meaningful moment, we'd hope to have more than just a one-liner quote, and that covers his whole tenure as Lord Commander, not just his disappearance. But, yep, that's what we have. And I guess these books are written by maesters, and from the maester's perspective which these histories are written from, what else is there to say? A maester can't speculate like a fan can. The maesters can't sit there wondering if he's hearing voices from the trees. They can't write, maybe he didn't disappear. Maybe he became the new last green seer. That's for us to consider. And sometimes even these basic details, as they so often do in George R. R. Martin's world, tell us so much. If I may soapbox it for a moment, we joke about getting so much out of one sentence. But this is not because the fandom tends to overthink things, although it definitely does do that from time to time. In most cases, though, there's just simply that much for us to think about. There is so much depth, so many layers, so many details to consider that the opposite can be true. Meaning, sure, don't overthink these things, but don't oversimplify them either. For example, just the fact that Bloodraven was ranging when he was 77 years old is reason to stop and think. Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Shouldn't that be the job of younger men? Well, we could argue that Gior Mormont went out ranging when he was about 69 or 70. But the counterargument to that is that in Gior's case, there were very unique circumstances. I guess becoming a tree is pretty unusual too, but still, a major part of this great ranging was with regards to Mance Raider. 
But there were, shall we say, supernatural reasons as well. Gior was worried about what else was happening. He didn't know exactly what it was, but he knew experienced men were deserting in fear, and a dead man tried to kill him in his own room at night and did kill the acting first ranger. So this isn't really a debate. We're just trying to highlight the most likely possibilities by framing it as one. Frame it as a debate and kind of talk it through. But we're keeping a clear eye on what we know, which is, well, look at it this way. Since an older Lord Commander leaving, in Gior's case, was because of special circumstances, maybe that's what it was for Bloodraven. Maybe it wasn't that he was just ranging regularly in his late 70s. Maybe this was some special case. Maybe it was a different king beyond the wall threatening to rise. Maybe that's the simplest explanation, probably, or at least among the simplest. Well, we do have some data on that. Raymond Redbeard was put down well before Brendan took the black, and we hear of no other leaders until Mance. On the other hand, consider who we're dealing with here. Perhaps this lack of news is because keeping rebel factions from uniting was one of Bloodraven's specialties. Even though calling wildlings rebels isn't accurate, it's the same concept, basically. Just don't let your enemies unite against you. And Bloodraven was really good at preventing that from happening. He was really good. Maybe, maybe that's what it was. Maybe he was just that good here. Maybe he vaguely, anyone who looked like they had the ability to unite the wildlings, he took them out. I remind you the fact that the second Blackfire Rebellion itself wasn't really considered a rebellion because Brynden got the jump on them so badly that they never got going. He just was an insider from the beginning and just undercut all their efforts. But also to be fair, leaders like Mance and Raymond Redbeard are pretty rare. Uh, it's quite possible Brynden just never faced that kind of threat during his tenure as Lord Commander. So let's think this through some more. As it is with so many junctures in Brendan's life, we are faced with many possibilities. We can't go too far suggesting kings be on the wall when perhaps this was simply a routine ranging, after all. But still, why is a 77-year-old out on a routine ranging if that's the case? Either way, there's something a little strange about this. But again, we can't just leap from, he seems too old for ranging, to thinking there must be some grave calamity beyond the wall because a 77-year-old is ranging. That's not how that works. On another hand, maybe it was just time. Maybe he was having dreams, dreams of trees with faces and the voice or voices of whoever or whatever calling to him. Not unlike how Bran was called to. So if his calling to Bran was anything like what some elder greenseer did to Brynden, then we can suppose it was something along these lines. Similarly, except there is this large age gap to keep in mind. Brynden being way older than Bran, as well as this potential lack of urgency. We don't know who he was with. Uh, we're, we would guess that it wasn't with an entire army, like an entire army vanished like the one Gior took. That would have given us more information probably, but he probably wasn't alone either. As a new recruit, he likely had little say in who he went ranging with, but at this point, as Lord Commander, he could pick his squad, and it's a very safe assumption he favored at least a few of his raven's teeth right? Those would be his most trusted men that he'd work with for far longer than he'd been on the wall. And this begs a tough question. If he knew, did he know that he was leaving never to return again? If so, did those men coming with him know that too? Did they come anyway, knowing that their return or their lives were uncertain at that point? It's quite possible. Remember, these are guys who already took an oath to join the watch to follow him there. That they already showed distinctly strong loyalty, overwhelmingly. So 
it's definitely on the table. It's kind of not unlike what Jojen Reed has done for Bran, right? He's taken Bran to the cave, and now he doesn't expect to live much longer. He says his task is done. It's hard not to think of whomever was with Bloodraven when we think of Jojen, especially Jojen's sacrifice, especially if Jojen paste is a true theory. Maybe Brendan had to eat one of his companions like Jojen has to have been eaten, probably. Although I don't know that any of the raven's teeth would have the right blood for that. Yeah, that's a question. And there are other questions. Like the details of the mission itself. We're back to that. How did it go from ranging to entering that cave and never leaving? Did the children reveal themselves along the way and maybe lead him there? Did his dreams tell him exactly where to go, like Brands did? Meaning he did know where he was going ahead of time, as we posited earlier. Or, an even bigger question, have the others been active longer than it's widely perceived? It kind of feels like they've been active for maybe only a few years at most at the start of the books, but we could be wrong. Maybe they've been active a lot longer and they were just so far north or so, uh, maybe they have a long (laughs) awakening period after hibernating for 8,000 years. We don't know how this stuff works. Maybe Brendan ran into danger from them and had to take shelter in this cave that he's now permanently a part of. Or maybe it was something mundane. Maybe something very simple like it was snowing really bad and they just had to hide in this cave for a while and hey... Look at all these bones, and hey, what's all this other stuff? And the rest is history. Whatever it was, it seems that once he got into that cave, he probably never left again. So there's a lot of questions left to answer. At least one of them isn't, where is he now? We know exactly where he is, and he's not moving. But we return to the question of, where are his men? What happened to them? If any of them survived, whatever it was that happened, whatever calamity they may or may not have faced... They could report him dead. They could come back and say, yeah, Brendan died. But I kind of doubt this. Would they leave their Lord Commander behind if they weren't 100% sure he was dead? I suppose if he ordered them to, maybe. But I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. And if what if nobody returned? What if that ranging went out and no members of that party came back? In a way, that would tell the same story. Everyone's dead. They're all gone. They would expect, well, that's it. We got to elect a new Lord Commander. After a certain amount of time had passed, that would be the only conclusion they could come to. They would have no other information, so they'd have to move on. Gior Mormont was named Lord Commander in 288, replacing old Lord Corgyle. Just because this Lord Corgyle was old doesn't mean he was Lord Commander for a long time, or even on the wall for a long time, just that he was old when he died. But lords rarely take the black, especially Dornish lords. So it's fun to imagine that he was sent to the Wall after the fourth Blackfire Rebellion. We know the Ironwoods fought for Daemon III Blackfire, as well as for Hagon and Daemon I. The Ironwoods had rebelled multiple times, which would mean a severe punishment, especially given Bloodraven's attitude towards rebels. The prominence and power of House Ironwood implies that other Dornish houses were with them in fighting for the Black Dragon. If House Corgyle was one of them, and the Lord at the time was a younger man, it would fit pretty perfectly. This could even mean he took over as Lord Commander after Bloodraven vanished and held the position all the way up until it passed to Gior Mormont. Your monster, Brendan Rivers. Bran won a dance with dragons. The long hall's wooden door banged open, 
Outside, the night wind howled, bleak and black. The trees were full of ravens screaming. Cold hands did not move. A monster, Bran said. The ranger looked at Bran as if the rest of them did not exist. Your monster, Brandon Stark. Yours? The raven echoed from his shoulder. Outside the door, the ravens and the trees took up the cry until the night would echoed to the murder's song of Yours? 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 Georgia, did you dream this? Mira asked her brother. Who is he? What is he? What do we do now? Cold Hands is very likely guided or controlled by Blood Raven. And if so, the raven on his shoulder may be speaking with his voice as well. Furthermore, when Cold Hands leaves the party to kill those rogue rangers nearby, the elk knows where to go without being told, indicating it too is guided by an unseen hand. When the elk collapses from exhaustion, they're forced to eat it. Cold Hands whispers a blessing in an unknown language. That's a curious moment. He also seems to talk to ravens, and they certainly follow him in large numbers. And he knows things about his own nature as an undead being. Hmm. He refuses to move, remove his mask, but that might just be because, say, part of his face is missing and he doesn't need to be scarier than he already is. He's definitely not hiding a smile under there. <laughs> and he also can't cross the wall, and he can't enter the cave. Yet he's still keeping his post while a Lord Commander, his or not, holds a post of his own down below. Deep in the caves, that is. In complete darkness amongst roots and bones. That's an unorthodox post to hold, to be sure. But, hey, he was in charge when he took it, so technically it was in his authority to say, right? <laughs> Maybe he said something like this, but less goofy. Stay here until the next Greenseer comes. He's a particularly important one. Yes, Lord Brendan. Something like that. But still, with... With that mask and no other details, we don't know who he was. We just know he was some guy, right? And we'd like to know. Anne Grohl, who is editor of all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, while editing A Dance with Dragons, she asked George, in the margins, when the character Cold Hands was introduced, she wrote, Benjamin? George R. R. Martin actually also wrote, in the margin next to it, no. Well, that's definitive, isn't it? <laughs> So the idea that Benjamin was cold hands was long in the fandom before this moment where that theory was crushed. So it was quite long as that theory. But another theory now has to take its place because that one's gone. Uh, I think this one's maybe a little bit less shiny, but it's my favorite given what we know. And I do think it's the best option because when we boil it down, whatever cold hands is, however old he is, whoever he was in life, he's a brother of the Night's Watch. In death, He's serving Brendan Rivers. Those two things we can be very solid on. What kind of man has that kind of loyalty? The same kind of man who would follow his lord even to the wall, maybe? To take the black in the depth of winter? That's pretty loyal, as we've said. What kind of men would Lord Brendan take with him when he went ranging? As we said, the ones he could trust the most. Surely they had to be capable, but loyalty was important as well. I submit to you that Cold Hands was probably one of the raven's teeth. Like his lord... He went from a highly important, prominent post with one of the most important figures in the realm to the wall. Yet somehow, when he took the black, protecting his boss became even more important. He was no longer protecting the hand of the king. He was protecting what may be the key hope of all humankind. In the history of cold hands identity theorizing, these lines are oft cited. Brand 2, A Dance with the Dragons. 
the ranger. He cannot come. They'll kill him. No, they killed him long ago. Come now, it is warmer down deep, and no one will hurt you there. He is waiting for you. There's been some debate over the use of the phrase long ago. To me, it means anything from several years to thousands of years. All it really means to me is not recently, uh, not within the last few years. But if he was one of the raven's teeth, it would be roughly 48 years ago. That's long ago, especially considering that phrase long ago is said to Bran, whose life has been very short. So 48 years is a long time to a 10-year-old. But it could be longer. Again, I'm not trying to say this is the only available theory. Cold hands could be like a green seer coyote, <laughs> helping those special few find this cave that he himself cannot enter. I really hope George finds a way for the question of Cold Hand's identity be, to be revealed somehow. Maybe a conversation between Bran and Brendan, so we get some kind of answer that way, maybe. But if we don't, this is where I'm going to rest on it. Until we get something else, my best guess is Cold Hands was one of the Raven's teeth. But Cold Hands aside, there's one more unanswerable question I have for us all to consider. No matter what the circumstances were for Brendan in the cave and joining the Werewood Network, he had to have some kind of moment roughly like Bran and his friends did. Meaning, who greeted Brendan amidst those bones and roots? Maybe some of the children, if they hadn't already met him before. But apart from them, before Bloodraven came to take root in the place he still remains, he was presented to someone as Bran was presented to him. Someone who holds the title he holds now. The same title he intends to pass to Bran. The Last Greenseer. Bran too, A Dance with Dragons. Are you the three-eyed crow? Bran heard himself say. A three-eyed crow should have three eyes. He has only one, and that one red. Bran could feel the eye staring at him, shining like a pool of blood in the torchlight. Where his other eye should have been, a thin white root grew from an empty socket down his cheek and into his neck. Ah, crow. The pale lord's voice was dry. His lips moved slowly as if they had forgotten how to form words. Once, I, black of carp and black of blood. The clothes he wore were rotten and faded, spotted with moss and eaten through with worms, but once they had been black, I have been many things, Brett. Now I am as you see me, and now you will understand why I could not come to you, except in dreams. I have watched you for a long time. Watched you with a thousand eyes and one. I saw your birth and that of your Lord Father before you. I saw your first step, heard your first word, was part of your first dream. I was watching when you fell. And now you are come to me. At last, Brandon Stark, though the hour is late. 
This confusion from Bloodraven has led to confusion in the fandom, but I strongly believe it to be misplaced confusion. Just as Cold Hands is not truly the name of the man behind that mask, Three-Eyed Crow is not a name Bloodraven chose for himself. Both are nicknames. Sam and Gilly dub the ranger Cold Hands, then told Brandon's friends. They would probably call him by his real name if they knew what it was, but he hasn't given it. Sometimes they just call him the ranger, but there's those freakish black cold hands, so cold hands. Same with Three-Eyed Raven, Three-Eyed Crow. The bird in Brand's dreams didn't give his name, but those three eyes sure do stand out. In all of Brand's dreams, he's a crow with three eyes. He never says, oh, hey, by the way, I'm Brendan. A name is not important. He's distinct already. There's no other crows with three eyes in his dream. (laughs) There's just the one. Brand's not going to confuse him with some other multi-eyed bird. But when telling Jojen and Mira about his dreams, he has to call him something. So, the three-eyed crow. Now, you can say, Brand's seeing a crow, not a raven. And technically, the two are different. It's a small difference, but perspective comes into play again here. Brand is seven or eight when he falls. He probably doesn't know the difference between a crow and a raven. Also, Brendan is blood raven, right? But he's a crow. He's a night's watchman. So that does fit. Blood crow sounds cool, but not as cool, by the way. <laughs> if we assume that Cold Hands is speaking with blood raven's voice, then when Mira asked, who is the three-eyed crow? And he answered, a friend. Dreamer, wizard, call him what you will, the last greenseer. If so, that means he's talking about himself. If not, then it's Cold Hands, who still has some personality remaining, which could work. I mean, he wouldn't be the first dead person who still has personality in this world. Uh, So, yeah, that wouldn't be the first time. I wonder about this blessing that he whispered to the elk as he killed it. Is it more proof that Brendan is speaking through him, or is it the other? Proof that Cold Hands has some of his own personality remaining in himself. More is pretty well explained here, too, as Mira does the asking again in this quote. Bran three, A Dance with Dragons. The last green seer, the singers called him, but in Bran's dreams he was still a three-eyed crow. When Mira Reed had asked him his true name, he made a ghastly sound that might have been a chuckle. I wore many names when I was quick, but even I once had a mother, and the name she gave me at her breast was Brynden. I like that he's laughing about the names he's had, <laughs> like it's some joke. <laughs> and the appendix, by the way, of A Dance of the Dragon straight up says, Brynden Rivers is the three-eyed crow. This fandom is filled with great theories, so really, don't waste your time with the notion that there's a mystery in this particular case. Regarding my earlier soapboxing, this is an example of overthinking it. So let's get to the real mysteries. Another character sits on underground weirwood roots, wears a black cloak, is missing an eye, is imbued with powers from a god, and really shouldn't be alive. It's Lord Beric Dondarrion. So we can say that Arya's experience gave us a taste of what her brother had later. Though she didn't have to taste one of her friends like Bran may have, Arya does have a moment where she becomes alarmed at the possibility she's being fed human flesh at the House of Black and White. But the kindly man tells her it's pork. It may very well be, but when Cold Hands told Bran and company that he had brought pork for them to eat after killing a sow, it was actually human flesh. 
Talk about needing to watch what you eat. What fools we were. A feast for crows. Samuel Fool. He was a prince that was promised. Not a princess. Rhaegar, I thought. The smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall on the day of his birth. The salt from the tears shed for those who died. He shared my belief when he was young, but he later became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy. For a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain the bleeding star had to be a comet. What fools we were who thought ourselves so wise. The error crept in from the translation. Dragons are neither male nor female. Bath saw the truth of that. But now one and now the other, as changeable as flame. The language misled us all for a thousand years. Daenerys is the one, born amid salt and smoke. The dragons prove it. As he was earlier in the episode, Aemon is our touchstone here again. He connects a lot of important characters and threads together. Key characters and threads. Aemon, of course, has his ties to Jon Snow, but he also corresponded with his brother Aegon V, who tried to hatch eggs at Summerhall, and later he corresponded with the man who was born at Summerhall, Rhaegar. Aemon and Rhaegar discussed prophecy through letters. According to Egg, it was King Aerys I who rediscovered the prophecy that the dragons would come again, probably the prince that was promised prophecy. Bloodraven, as we detailed in the prior episode of him, was close to Ares I. So connect those dots. Aemon, with all his knowledge, Bloodraven, with all his, they were there together at a hinge of the world with time to discuss it. Aemon discussed with conviction things with Rhaegar that they were both proven wrong about. Aemon mentions his sorrow to Jon Snow, but he may have felt some measure of guilt on top of it all. Bloodraven, too, may have contributed these mistakes, we can call them. Or perhaps he argued against Aemon's findings. He may have been saying, no, don't tell Rhaegar to do that. (laughs) But like Aemon, who suffered when he learned the news of the fall of his house and the death of Rhaegar and all those kids, Bloodraven would have seen the event from within his tree, like so many other things he would have seen. Perhaps he saw Howland Reed's trip to the Isle of Faces, certain parts of Robert's Rebellion. He says he saw the birth of Bran... How about the birth of John and the comet? What did it mean to him? What did it mean to the children of the forest? The longstanding question is what does or will Melisandre think of Daenerys? The same question applies to Bloodraven. Does he see her and her dragons as vital to defeating the others? How does the prophetic knowledge he learned as a man impact what he does as a member of the old godhood? A recurring theme with prophecy is misinterpretation which is just a fancy way of saying making mistakes, screwing up. Maester Aemon may have made some of these mistakes. In the name of fulfilling prophecy and saving the world, he may have misled Rhaegar, though Rhaegar may have done that on all on his own. He may not have needed any help with that. Is Bloodraven making any of those same mistakes with Bran? These are both mentor figures to people who are, or think they are, prophesied heroes. So we got to consider some of the same possibilities. And this is a Song of Ice and Fire. Needn't I remind you, is this really a story where mentors give perfect mentoring to their students? Definitely not. In terms of limitations, Bran is already doing things he's not supposed to do. Doing things that 
go beyond the scope of his training, you might say, like controlling Hodor and possibly speaking through time. And Eamon has just admitted his own errors in translation in that quote and interpretation, possibly helping to mislead Rhaegar. And Bran's abilities seem to be beyond Brendan's, perhaps in ways he's not even aware of, which just adds to the possibility that something could go wrong. And as we saw in his earlier life, his life before the wall, that is, Brendan was highly competent, but not above mistakes. This is a fantasy character with lots of fantasy traits, but he's written as a human being. That's the core of who he is. He loved and hated like anybody. And his decisions were sometimes affected by those emotions, like, again, with everyone. Eamon lived to see those things play out. Whether his mistakes had anything to do with it, they happened. Summerhall happened, and he had to reflect on that. Then after that, Rhaegar and Lyanna and the rebellion happened. All that. Eamon passed some of the wisdom he learned from those events onto John, but more information he seems to have kept to himself. Some of those things were revealed in bits and pieces on his deathbed as he's leaving the protection of the cult. A major factor for Eamon is the overwhelming length of time he's had to reflect on his life and the life of those close to him that made such fateful decisions. Decisions rooted in interpretation of prophecy, something so dangerous and uncertain in the first place. By that token, Bloodraven has had even longer than Eamon to reflect on those roads not traveled, those things that could have been. Now, I'm not sure the Green Seers even do that, but if they do, well, he's had a lot longer to do it. Now, beyond time, Apart from time, he has something even more important over Eamon in terms of worrying over the past. Of course, I mean the Werewood Net, which remembers all. Talk about getting lost in your own past. Can you imagine having that right at your fingertips, the ability to just look through your own past infinitely and see everything that happened? Just imagine him thinking to himself, if I weren't so busy preparing the world to save itself from complete destruction, I would totally kick back and watch Shiera footage from back in the day all day. Well... A man of his intellectual curiosity would surely find better things to do than that. But again, he's human. He'd sneak a peek. <laughs> I kid. But it's true that the mentors in the Song of Ice and Fire are far from the paragons of virtue and perfect information so common to this and all genres, really. They aren't perfect because they're human. Eamon was our example just now. So was Brendan. Ned Stark is another example. Plenty of mistakes. We love him, but he made mistakes. And our subject, magical peeping Tom Foolery aside, Surely made his share, too. With great power comes great responsibility? Sure. But that's what we hope for, not how the world works. George R. R. Martin writes with that same realism in a non-realistic setting. The wrong people get power often, sad to say. And A Song of Ice and Fire as well certainly has its share of characters who should not have power, but do. In our Euron episode, we discussed the theory that Bloodraven reached out to him as a boy, seeing the green seer talent in him in a similar way that he did with Bran. Remember, Euron talks of, uh, if the, ma- the maester said we can't fly, but what if he was wrong? A lot of the same language that Bran uses. Giving Euron Greyjoy power qualifies as a mistake, doesn't it? <laughs> but seven-year-old Euron? Maybe that's less of a mistake. I still think it's kind of a mistake, but less of one. Brendan didn't know what kind of man Euron would turn out to be. Well, wait. Actually. Bran three, A Dance with Dragons. Once you have mastered your gifts, you may look where you will and see what the trees have seen. Be it yesterday or last year or a thousand ages past. Men live their lives trapped in an eternal present. 
between the mists of memory and the sea of shadow that is all we know of the days to come. Furthermore, there's a fair argument to be made that giving any son of House Greyjoy power, especially magical powers, is a mistake. <laughs> Melisandre may be a lesson here. Perhaps the same errors of interpretation we see from her can happen to Greenseers as well. Being able to glimpse the future or even see it doesn't mean you've properly understood everything you're seeing. So I think we should always keep in mind that in A Song of Ice and Fire, everyone is fallible. If the theory that Euron had his powers awakened by Bloodraven is true, then it's arguably a mistake <laughs> for Bloodraven. It's definitely one if Euron ends up bringing down the wall. What an irony that would be. All that time and effort preparing and trying and all these things trying to save humanity only to trigger a series of events that leads to a new long night. Whoops. Speaking of mistakes, does it matter that Bloodraven's dragon blood has gone into the Werewood network? It's magical blood, as we've explained elsewhere. Does that matter? It might be the first time it's ever happened since the era of the Great Empire of the Dawn, if ever. What a kick in the teeth if that turns out to be a problem, right? Especially like a big problem, if that's the case. It could even be the reason the others came back. They're like, what is this fire blood doing in our network? <laughs> Probably not, but it's a cool theory. And it leads us to other theories, sinister theories that say, well, if Bloodraven did these things to bring down the wall. Maybe it wasn't an accident. Maybe that was the intent all along. Whoa. That he's misleading Bran, perhaps. Using him to help the others. Or maybe planning on stealing his body like Bran steals Hodor's. Hmm? To me, this feels like the kind of accusations he faced during his decades of ruling at the side of the Iron Throne. When he was suspected by many people of plotting various misdeeds or plotting to take the throne for himself. But he never did those things. Such petty considerations are unworthy of a man now seemingly dedicated to saving all of humanity. It's hard for the phrase, he has bigger things to worry about, to land harder than it does here. His gifts and talents are many, but they are balanced by an extraordinary burden, the likes of which literally no one has faced before. But I could be wrong. There's always room for that. The wealth of theories and possibilities can be overwhelming here. That's part of the issue which is a big part of why we're asking so many questions without even trying to answer them. The point is to raise the issue and let you think about them. That's how we can handle unanswerable questions. We entertain them, we play with them, but we can't expect to have definitive answers. Not yet, anyway. From a crow who pretends to have one eye to one who appears to have three, but actually has one, <laughs> only in dreams and visions do such things make any sort of sense. That just adds more to the difficulty of figuring all this out. But still, it's worth a look. The Crow of Your Dreams Bran Three, A Game of Thrones Bran looked at the crow on his shoulder, and the crow looked back. It had three eyes, and the third eye was full of a terrible knowledge. Bran looked down. There was nothing below him now but snow and cold and death, a frozen wasteland where jagged blue-white spires of ice waited to embrace him. They flew up at him like spears. He saw the bones of a thousand other dreamers impaled upon their points. He was desperately afraid. Earlier we asked the question of whether the others had been active for longer than we may have thought. Maybe they've been awake sooner than within the last few years. If so, then Brendan may have been searching for his successor earlier as well. And the impaled dreamers in that quote 
And people like Euron may have been those who failed or never got their first try. Recently or long ago, did these things happen? We can't say, but it says thousands of dreamers. So it sounds like something that's been happening for a long time, a very long time. In terms of A Song of Ice and Fire, well, it's been happening since the beginning of the novels, at the very least, but surely before that as well. Bran's coma dreams begin in the third chapter, his third chapter, and he continues to dream of him after awakening again. So it's not just the coma, but Bloodraven has been appearing in other dreams besides Bran's since before the books began. Of course, we already mentioned Euron as a strong possibility, but we have a more certain one from Jojen, who flat out says the three-eyed crow has been appearing in his dreams since he was a child. Bran 4, A Clash of Kings I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth with grey stone chains, he said. It was a green dream, so I knew it was true. The crow was trying to peck through the chains, but the stone was too hard, and his beak could only chip at them. Did the crow have three eyes? Jojen nodded. Summer raised his head from Bran's lap and gazed at the mudman with his dark, golden eyes. When I was little, I almost died of grey water fever. That was when the crow came to me. Beyond that, Mira reveals that they know where the three-eyed crow lives. Beyond the wall. You know, they don't have a map, but they know beyond the wall. And that their father, Howland Reed, sent them to Winterfell when Jojen told him about this dream that we just quoted. That is huge. The fact that Howland understands all this so well, just the mention of him is a bit exciting, right? It sort of implies he has some knowledge of the higher mysteries beyond the f- just being a character that's waiting around to share some R plus L equals J details. He's going to do more than that. Howland understood that Bran needed those chains to be broken. As the dream revealed, the crow couldn't do it alone. Bloodraven knew he couldn't fully help Bran understand the powers awakening in him, nor easily encourage him to come north without help to awaken them further. And he certainly couldn't get to the cave without help. Bran makes this connection. He understands it. He realizes, hey, these dreams started when you had your fever and when I had my fall. And that seems to be maybe meaningful. But Maybe not. Lest we think an injury or illness is necessary for this connection to be formed, for him to enter their dreams, Bloodraven also says this. Bran 2, A Dance with Dragons. I saw your birth and that of your Lord Father before you. I saw your first step, heard your first word, was part of your first dream. I was watching when you fell, and now you are come to me at last, Brandon Stark, though the hour is late. Boy, that last part, the hour is late, that's chilling. It means they don't have a lot of time, and Brand is already so young. Imagine Bloodraven trying to teach him when he was even younger. And another example... Melisandre sees him in a vision. A dance with dragons. A face took shape within the hearth. Stannis, she thought for just a moment. But no, these were not his features. A wooden face, corpse white. Was this the enemy? A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. He sees me. Beside him. A boy with a wolf's face threw back his head 
and howled. And he sees her. How about that? A thousand eyes and one in life. And it may have been an exaggeration, but even Leaf uses that phrase now. So a thousand might actually be underselling it here now in his second life, afterlife, whatever you want to call it. And Melisandre, considering that he might be one of the bad guys, is part of where some of those theories that he is a bad guy come from. But we know better than to take Mel's interpretation so straightforwardly, right? She makes mistakes. Who else has seen Bloodraven in visions or dreams? It's not just Bran and Jojen and maybe Euron and some of these other characters. Maybe Rhaegar? Other people who have dreamt of dragons? Maybe people dreamt of him before he was even born. I mean, dreaming of dragons being born is dreaming of things that aren't born yet. Maybe they dreamed of certain people. If Melisandre can see him, what about the other Red Priests? Has Makoro seen him? Benero? Will they eventually? Probably. <laughs> what about the Warlocks of Karth or Shadowbinders from Ashai? Do any of them know of his existence? Does he know of theirs? The latter I'd be more likely to believe, but both would not be a tough sell. The Green Seers who came before him are one of the better guesses for people who uh, knew of him before he came there. But as a topic, Green Seers raise more questions than they answer. A big one is wondering about their ability to see the future, as in what things in the future they'd be most concerned about. One of the biggest questions I'd have for them, if I could ask, is what about the long night? What have they done to stop it? Or what did they do to cause it? Or have they looked beyond it? Can they see the future beyond the long night? Does that tell them how this will all play out? Do they know how the others will be beaten? Is that a sure thing? Have they seen their own deaths? Do they know the mechanism with which the others will be defeated? (sighs) So many questions. Whatever answers they have, how long have they had them? Is this something they've known for thousands of years? Is it something they've been waiting for? Did they know it would be just some winter in the future? Or did they know it would be this winter? A thousand winters in one. Consider how many winters have come and gone since the long night. It's some incredibly incalculable number. Other green seers have come and gone in that time, though they aren't truly gone. The human part of them is. Or the child part, because many of the children of the forest are where the green seers come from. With all that time passed, just come down to one crucial winter. The winter that was promised. That's a lot of pressure for Bran, more than he can comprehend at his age. Might be a good thing that he can't fully comprehend it. It's like an ignorance is bliss situation, I guess you could say. His mentor, Brendan, the three-eyed blood raven, can comprehend it, at least to some degree. The burden is as incalculable as the number of winters that have passed since the long night. Bran will be different from other Greenseers for several reasons, and we can say this even without knowing a whole lot about Greenseers in the first place. For one thing, Bran won't be waiting. The others are already active. Time is now. With Bran, there was a rush for him to join the trees because of the imminent threat. We and others have asked, well, why did Bloodraven take so long to join the trees himself? Well, maybe that was the wrong way to look at it. For Bran, as I said, there's a rush. For Brendan, there maybe wasn't. Doesn't seem like there needed to be. The Weirwood network is quasi-eternal, as the text shows, so what's the rush? 77 seems like a reasonable age to do that instead of joining the trees when you're an able-bodied person. Waiting until your body starts to fail makes sense in a way. Otherwise, it's like a hurry-up-and-wait situation. And he's not the only one waiting. 
Bran Three, A Dance with Dragons. The ward upon the cave mouth still held. The dead men could not enter. The snow had buried most of them again, but they were still there, hidden, frozen, waiting. Other dead things came to join them, things that had once been men and women, even children. Dead ravens sat on bare brown branches, wings crusted with ice. A snow bear crashed through the brush, huge and skeletal, half its head sloughed away to reveal the skull beneath. Summer and his pack fell upon it and tore it into pieces. Afterwards they gorged, though the meat was rotted and half-frozen, and moved even as they ate it. Earlier we wondered what other magical beings out in the world know of Blood Raven's existence. Well, given this quote, the others were clearly on that list. So this is a case where waiting is an act of courage, an act of duty. But it's not all waiting, is it? There's a lot of watching and moving pieces around on the game board from time to time, too. Clearly, at some point, Blood Raven went from watching to getting involved, if not right away. And though I said we can't possibly nail down all his moves, there are some that really stand out. Let's recap a few that we've touched on already and name a few more. We think he sent the direwolves to the Starks. Some people think he controls Beleriand the cat in the Red Keep, or that he made Marcella's horse flinch away from Darkstar at the last moment, saving her life. Why? I don't know, but it's possible. You can imagine him in just about any animal, especially the ravens, of course. We've already mentioned Cold Hands helping Bran, but he also saved Sam and Gilly at the last possible moment and had all those ravens with him. Blood Raven has seen a lot of Sam. After their vows and discovering the bodies of Othor and Jafer Flowers with their mysteriously blue eyes, Sam and John return to the wall with the frozen corpses who rise in the night in an attempt to murder two key officers. One is successful killing First Ranger Sir Jeremy Riker. The other fails to kill Lord Commander Mormont in part because of Jon Snow. But really, Jon Snow was warned by Ghost. Now, we don't think Bloodraven sent these corpses to attack the Night's Watch officers, though I suppose it is possible. Far more likely, he may have alerted Ghost that the dead were walking. But again, Ghost doesn't necessarily need help with that. It's only a possibility. So here's where we need to repeat the caveat that we made at the beginning as we wrap this up. There are too many... Maybe it was Bloodraven pulling the strings type questions to cover them all, and nearly all of them lack evidence. But I hope we've made it as clear as possible that there are a lot of possibilities. And that's a good thing. Mysteries are fun. It seems likely that humanity will win out in the end, even if by win we set a really low bar and have that mean simply surviving the threat of the Long Night and the others. It doesn't necessarily mean thriving. If so, and humanity sees a new dawn, when it's all done, the survivors will likely not even know the role he played. There will be no glory for Brendan Rivers. Heck, they probably won't even know the role Bran played, let alone his mentor. More likely, characters like Jon and Daenerys will be the ones most credited with saving humanity, whether they live or not. As humanity played their Game of Thrones, people moving themselves and each other around the board like pieces squabbling over power. He sat in his own throne, moving them like pieces, but not for himself. For them, to save them, but perhaps to save the Weirwoods as well. There may be some self-preservation in play here too. After all, the mouth of his cave isn't warded against humans or children of the forest. It's warded against the undead. There are secrets yet for him to reveal. 
perhaps hidden motivations as well. Things from his past that no longer reflect the man he was, a more powerful statement from a being so old. If everyone changes with time, then he's got serious credibility in that regard. But he probably wouldn't care. There never was much indication he cared about power for its own sake or glory or love of the people. He had respect, but wasn't really seen as a man of honor either. There's no indication he craved those things either, however. Though others may not know the role he played, perhaps he will at least remember himself, because the North remembers, the Werewoods remember, and he will forever be a part of that nameless pantheon. Or will he? How confident are we in those wards on the mouth of the cave? Should we take for granted that the Werewood Network will survive? Maybe we have been taking it for granted, and maybe we should not. There's so much to look forward to with just this part of the plotline, and I expect there to be many surprises. We'll just have to wait and see for ourselves. When, Bran wanted to know, in a year or three or ten, that I have not glimpsed. It will come in time. I promise you. Until that day, Valar Reredis. We also give a big thanks to guest producer Zach Louie of Game of Owns. Check out Game of Owns podcast and check out how much better we sound in this episode. We're going to maybe try to do this more often with him, but that's going to take some arranging. And, uh, well, we'll let you know how that goes. And it was also just really fun for me to watch Ashea and Zach work together. Thanks to Michal Schick of Vassals of Kingsgrave Podcast and Hypable.com for doing the voices again for us. Excellent job. Follow her on Twitter, at Inc. As Rain. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and all of our maps. Thanks to all the artists whose art we were able to use in this episode. And thanks to Joey Kowal and Jesse Townsend for the music. A lot of people contribute to make this show financially feasible. Most of them do that through Patreon. Many people contribute at a level that gets them a shout-out at the beginning, middle, or end of each episode. Lord Mark of House Joseph is the Snow in Winterfell, rider of Mazalakartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Jinx of House Lier is Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Erogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King. The Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower. Soldier, scholar, philosopher, diplomat. Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Asha. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fireblog is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. His ships have recently been seen in the far north, apparently collecting large amounts of dragonglass. And apparently the skulls of giants? Hmm. Our small council includes Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin, and Lord Johan of House Orcos, called Shadowhawk, Master of Whisperers. The Queen's High Council has Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whisperers, Rebea Stareyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat, In the Shadows We Bear Our Claws, and Grand Maester Elizabeth, Middle Daughter of Lyanna Mormont, First Lady to Forge Both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. 
currently we have no masters of coin or laws. Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of the Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland of Zubdevil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter of the Hawk's Eye is Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Donhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of the Valyrian Short Swords Glorious Morning and Little Light Wise, sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow Todd Von Oben. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwarewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Bluespring. Nevesa the Twin-Hearted, a suspected skin-changer, is Holder of Castle Carahelm. Sir Valentin of House DeGen is creator of the Free Game of Thrones Predictions Market. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island is Protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earthdog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweenie. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our King's Guard is led by Lord Commander Mariamar, backed up by Sir Dollars D, longest tenured White Sword, Willa Crow's Bane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk, Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star, Sir George of House Pepsi, the Beverage Knight, and Gregor Snow called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell. My Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hama Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel. It also has Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious, Star of Old Town, Minds over Masters. Ser Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Ser Leon of House Walker, Wielder of the Twin Valyrian Steel Blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow, Rain. And Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. The Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unmound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, is Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frosty, Sir Tim Corgyle is Mad Boy of the Western Desert, and Queen Helena von Lonstein is partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something, A Kingdom for a Drink. Last but not least is the history of Westeros Night's Watch. Lord Commander Benjen Umber is the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword Winter's Kiss. First Builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, is the Fire in the Snow. First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine is called Pale Wind. And First Ranger Sir Source Delica of House Gramercy is bringing up the rear. That's it for this one, my fellow Westorians. 